The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So here I have two nuclear facilities. One, this horror. Fukushima, that then creates a narrative that nuclear energy is somewhat inherently unsafe, that, that if something bad happens, you can't, you can't stop the harm. But I've got another story for you, which is down the street. Actually, they learned how to fail. They were hit. They, the, the tsunami came, the, the earthquake came, and they had practice for it. And there wasn't, you didn't have a worst case scenario there. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 29th, 2022. We live in a time of seemingly constant catastrophes, and we still fumble when they occur, and we always seem a step behind. It's no longer about preventing disasters from occurring, but learning how to use the tools at our disposal to minimize the consequences when they inevitably do. Juliet Kayam has just written a book about it all called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an age of disasters. Juliet is a lecturer at the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and a CNN national security analyst. And I sat down with her in the virtual jungle studio to talk about it all. We talked about the traditional focus of the disaster framework, consequence minimalization, the paradox of preparedness, and a variety of disasters and what we can learn from them, ranging from the Y2K incident to Super Bowl 47 to the shipping incident in the Suez Canal back in 2021. There's a lot here about disasters and how to recover from them and how to deal with them in a way that stops the bleeding and keeps them from getting worse, even as they're occurring. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 29th. Juliet Kayem on Dealing with Disasters. You have a remarkable new book out called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an age of disasters. And it really turns our thinking around about thinking about catastrophes and accomplishing a couple of things with it. And I want to talk through that with you. But to do so, I think we need to start out with an understanding of what the traditional focus of crisis managers and planners has been. What is the usual way of looking Mm -hmm. at disasters? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm a I'm a listener, first time caller, second time caller actually, but uh, mm-hmm. just thrilled to be here and and uh, to talk about a book I've been thinking about for 20 years, but have written in the in the last year. So the framework that you talk about and it's it's rather simplistic. I mean, we're sort of a, I often say in the book or write in the book, you know, this is not rocket science. Is that in disaster management we divide the world into two phases, what we call left and right of boom. Now, the boom is agnostic, right? It could be the cyber attack, the pandemic, a climate event, a terrorist attack, whatever it is. We're sort of agnostic on that. It's just anything bad. And left of boom is really the investments that we put in both preventing and protecting ourselves uh, to avoid the disaster or catastrophe. Right of boom is what we do to to recover from it. And, and what that means, I think, for, for readers and the American public is that then when we think about disasters, we, we tend to think of success is generally viewed as stopping the bad thing from happening mm-hmm. and failure is when it can't. And, uh, and the goal of the book is to rethink and reframe how we think about disasters and also success. So you're not saying that we shouldn't try to predict disasters, that we shouldn't try to plan for catastrophes with a mind towards avoiding them. We, we should still do that, yes. but we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs in that basket right. because guess what? 
there's going to be a crisis. There's going to be a catastrophe and we can't avoid them all. Is that right? That's exactly right. So, uh, w- one tentative title at one stage was was assume the boom, but it was too it was too hard to explain. <laughs> I'll explain the present title later. Uh, but uh, yeah, exactly. So we need now to prepare for disruptions, that moment of the boom, um, as a common phenomenon rather than the surprise factor or the oh we failed factor and. And view success as whether those preparations for the boom, for the inevitable, as I think the is the right framework, led to less harm. Uh, whether those those preparations actually led to less harm and destruction than might otherwise have occurred. So, and I tend to talk in bulk, and it's not that I'm not sympathetic. These are just numbers. But you know, we, as you and I talk, we're, we are likely in the next couple weeks to hit a million Americans dead from the pandemic. That is a horrific number. But no one who knew that the boom was coming believed that that the number would be zero, let alone probably even a hundred. But you know, the difference between a million dead and if we had done this a lot better, a hundred thousand dead is is significant, right? These are real numbers. And and the the book takes us through centuries of disasters and crisis to show what went wrong and what and also importantly, what went right that that helped to mitigate those harms. In the age we live in now, where it's not just because of climate change, although that's clearly relevant, but mm-hmm. our globalization, our connectivity, cyber, sure. pandemics, everything, and and the pace and speed of what we you know, what what we're encountering, uh, focusing on right of boom investments, that moment of we'll save lives and we'll reorient our focus. Uh, I think in important ways, so that we can judge success differently. You know, I think it's it's so fascinating that you you bring up the pandemic case yeah. first and actually refer to it at several places in your analysis because that's if you reflect back to the coverage in February and March mm-hmm. of 2020, which I know you remember well because you were involved yes. in a lot of the analysis at yeah. the time. It was breaking news, hour long coverage when there were the first cases identified in the US. And when there were deaths in the US, that was a large figure on the screen, I think of all three major cable networks. Yeah. And as that number went up day by day, and it was, oh my God, seven Americans have died. There was definitely this attitude of prevention. How do we prevent it from becoming a pandemic? Yeah. And now we're talking what is it now? We're still averaging something in the last few weeks, a close to a thousand deaths a day. Yeah. And no one's talking about that. And right. yeah, yeah, that's because there are other crises in the world, like <laughs> invasions of, of European countries. Got it. But even before the invasion, it's almost like because of all the attention was paid on the how do we prevent it? And as it's happening, what could we have done to prevent it? Yeah. That we've we've worn out our ability to focus on how do we actually deal with it and prevent it from getting worse while it's happening. Exactly. Right. It's just like, it's like, oh, okay, well, we failed. Right. No, no, no. Like there's a difference between failing of a million dead and failing of a hundred thousand dead right. or whatever our number is. And, and it's that binary notion of, of sort of disasters, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's either they either good or bad. Right. And, and, you know, I live in the grays, you live in the grays that what you're trying to do is sort of reduce the consequences. So I, I have some wonky terms in the book, but I talk about sort of just consequence minimization. It does matter, right? It does matter if you can minimize what the Haitians call, and I describe in the book, what are called stupid deaths, right? Those deaths that, that didn't have to occur if only, uh, you had done X, Y, and Z, and I go through X, Y, and Z in the uh, in the book. And, and I'm a generally happy person and uh, and optimistic. But and part of it, I think, is because looking at all these disasters, right? We always are sort of surprised and oh my god, why us? And didn't think it could happen here. And what you realize is that while each of them is unique, mm-hmm. right? They all follow their own patterns. That really the the consequences tend to be the same and therefore the solutions are generally the same. And I wanted to, I wanted like to figure out that connective tissue of all of these disasters. I I start with Greek mythology and, and, uh, and the Trojan horse to, to Surfside. I make it all the way to Surfside. Mm. And, and what are those, those points of commonality that, that will make disaster sort of oddly familiar 
given, uh, given, given that we always exactly like that. We always seem surprised. And then when it happens, we're like, Oh yeah, that was too bad. Never again. That's a never again is a, you know, really is a hard promise to keep. <laughs> you mentioned the concept of stupid deaths. And yes. I want to be clear. You're not saying that these are no. stupid people making stupid choices, but they're consequences of a system of reaction to a crisis. Right. So it is not the uh, tornado outbreak. It's not the direct deaths from the tornado. It's the deaths from starvation because food can't get into the disaster zone. Is that right? That's exactly right. And and we can learn from those deaths. So one of the interesting, you know, I, I always say one of the interesting, I find it interesting because I wrote the book, but you know, so one of our obligations in disaster management is not simply to say, well, people died, but to also figure out, you know, how they died. And, and as importantly, sort of why did this person die and not that person? So mm -hmm. in the pandemic, for example, like, you know, vaccination is a, a sort of telling metric, right? And so, or this person was, you know, too close to the, in an earthquake, this person was, was too close to the building. That's why they died. And, and it, that's sort of, that's really our obligation. And so one of the interesting statistics coming out of US of the US is hurricane fatality. So we've gotten so good mm -hmm. at hurricane prediction and hurricane preparedness and management, especially in areas in the Gulf area. But we still lose uh, too many people each year. But we're not losing them from hurricanes. We're losing them because the resources are often not being delivered. The preparedness isn't there. The recovery is too mm -hmm. slow so that at least in the case of hurricanes, what's happening is people are dying of carbon monoxide uh, poisoning because they set up their own generators. So most U.S. deaths related to hurricanes and blizzards now are related to carbon monoxide. Well, that's a good thing to know because now, you know, when I plan for the when someone plan, you know public official plans for the next hurricane season or 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 blizzard, you're you're focused on that education and communication, which is what you started to see in particular in areas that get hit by hurricanes. They're much more focused on those generators because people know what to do, you know, stay home or, or evacuate. And to focus on that kind of factor, avoiding yeah. the so-called stupid deaths, you, you need to accept that prevention yeah. will fail, that yes. the crisis will happen. But you also recommend a couple of things that I want to talk through in a little more yeah. detail. You, you talk about establishing mechanisms to listen and communicate yeah. as the disaster actually unfolds. You talk right. about creating structures to enforce, for lack of a better phrase, unity of effort to respond yeah. to crises. So I want to start walking through some of that, Good. but beginning, beginning where that left of boom kind of hits the boom. Talk about the paradox of preparedness oh, and yeah. how that can get in the way of this kind of planning. It is a challenge. I mean, you know this coming from the intelligence world as well. It's a, it's a challenge of our professions that the better that you do, the likelihood that the consequences are less than what you were warning people about. And then they say, what the heck were you worried about? Uh, so the, that's the preparedness paradox, right? That, that people will not get that it was the very investments in communication, situational awareness, whatever it is that, that made the disaster less so or less bad, as I technically say in the book. And so this first came up in the Y2K incident or moment. This is when the computers were shifting from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, when computers were first built. They were, for whatever reason, they couldn't conceive of the world of the year 2000, they were not programmed to have two zero at the front. And there was a worry that without significant investments, uh, that the computers literally would crash. And these are computers controlling our aviation and rail and banking systems. And I would say you're even lowballing that there to say that it was a worry. Yeah. Having lived through that, it, it was omnipresent in yeah, the year years. before, especially yeah. the, the idea was that this could be like a zombie apocalypse movie that everything yeah. could shut down if we didn't take proper proper steps and therefore a lot of companies uh government offices and individuals did take proper steps so our memory of That's it is right. very different than what it felt like a few months before exactly and so because of the successes because of the that preparedness the things that you were doing the billions of dollars that were put into sort of reprogramming there were little blips here and there you know so this is like a 
ticketing station in Australia goes down or something like that, mm -hmm. but nothing of the magnitude that, that got people focused on it. So almost immediately a new narrative form that people like you and, and me and others were, were overly worried or panicked. Right. And so that becomes, that's the preparedness paradox. So we have to constantly fight against that. That's why we have to be in a stage of sort of perpetual preparedness because now, you know, we're not going to given, be given a date and time. It is, any potential moment you're going to encounter the boom. And the good news is, because I always like to focus on the good news is these, these preparedness efforts are knowable now. Mm -hmm. They will not stop the bad thing from happening. I want people like you and the climate people and everyone, you know, people who are, who might, whose careers may be more focused on left side of the boom to succeed. But then you do want these fail safe systems in place to stop the cascading losses, the stupid deaths, all, all the sure. sort of unnecessariness. So that's exactly right. So, and the only way to do that is to accept, as you said at the beginning, is to accept the inevitability of the boom that I, I give a lot of examples from both my public uh, sector life and my private sector life. I do a lot of consulting and I, one of my favorite examples of just sort of you know, responsible people not seeing how irresponsible they are is I, I do a, a lot of training or, or board briefing and, and one of the CEOs of a fortune 200 company. So this guy is not an idiot. Uh, I, I asked him casually, you know, how often do you see your COO? And mm -hmm. he says multiple times a day. And I said, well, what about your CFO? He says mm -hmm. about yeah, chief financial officer about twice a week. And mm -hmm. I said, your lawyer, he goes when I have to. <laughs> and I said, what about your chief security officer? And he says to me without any sense of anything, right? So he says, well, he's former FBI. He knows what he's doing. And I'm mm -hmm. like, no, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like that would be intolerable about a budget or operations or right. law. So this is a, a, a book. Someone described it as chatty, which I viewed as a compliment. A compliment I want average readers who are living a world in which they know there's more disasters to also have a, a much greater sense of what the profession looks like. That's all we are. We're just a profession. We're not, you know, it's not anything specialized and to, you know, open the curtain to that profession so that, so that they can see both their responsibility within it, but also, also how it works. Well, I certainly felt that while reading it and it, it took me back some 20 years to yeah. The period before September 11th, when I was at CIA and working in counterterrorism, and I can't tell you how many times—I mean, I literally can't because my memory is is fuzzy from lack of sleep and, and stress—how yeah. many times we would issue warnings, threat warnings, due to some high-quality terrorism-related intelligence, sometimes exquisite intelligence coming in that was talking about a likely terrorist attack, and sometimes we had a limited sense of geography that they were yeah. talking about a particular country, often in the Middle East, um, sometimes a particular facility, sometimes a particular time frame without that geographic narrowing, occasionally both, but usually not. And we would issue a warning and time after time, we would have, depending on the nature of the sourcing and the specificity of the threat, we would have embassies shutting down or measures taken to harden the defenses, to mix up the security routine around yeah. a certain facility, and the attack wouldn't happen. And what happens when you do that five times? Well, that yes. paradox of preparedness kicks in, right? Which is people say, yeah. well, you're warning all the time that something's going to happen and it hasn't happened. And you would just want to bang people's heads against the wall yeah. and say, do you realize that you took measures because of the threat reporting, which then changed the actual trajectory of of that timeline in the universe so that the exactly. bad guys didn't attack because of the very defenses you took. That's a hard message to get through until something happens like 9-11. And then the questions are, well, why didn't you do more to warn us? Exactly. So I, I understand the frustration and the book spoke to me, like I'm sure it does to many people in terms of that feeling of the, the misunderstanding between communicating the threat and the yeah. boom happening or not happening and how that affects people's thinking about crises. Right. It's, it's again, like what you, what we were saying earlier, it's just this binary notion, right? Did it happen or did it not happen? And, and there's a gazillion things that are, that are at play on both left and right side of boom of which we have agency over. And that, 
I hope that is a, a way in which my book is, is, is not fatalistic, but at least empowering. One of the, one of the things I realized, and when you, when you write your books, you probably go back and go, where did that word come from? And so <laughs> I had never looked up the word disaster. I've been in this field for at least since Hurricane Katrina. I, I started off in counterterrorism, and then my focus now is more on right. you know all hazards, any boom stuff. And but, but the etymology um, is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's all hazards, right? It's any boom, and so dis, of course, signifies a negative force. And then uh, this will be obvious to people now that I break it down. And then astro means star, so that's implying it implies or makes you think that a disruptive events occur only because of the stars, you know, only because the stars were aligned against us. That's how <laughs> people traditionally thought about it. So think of star-crossed lovers and it's so passive, right? And, and I think it wrongly excuses us from the obligation to plan for failure because we do have agency and, you know, we just, we are despite our daily attempts to prove otherwise, like a species worth fighting for, right? You know, so like, let's do it, right? You know, we know these bad things are going to happen. And so we started talking about what some of those things are, but obviously is, is the preparedness is a, is a, is a key factor on communication, on structure, on reporting chains and things like that. In terms of the communication, you, you make the point that communication during a crisis, both in terms of information gathering that will be triggered yeah. and, and followed through the entire crisis is important, as well as the awareness being shared with all relevant parties. Yeah. Reading that section of the book was was almost chilling because you didn't know that Russia was going to invade Ukraine right. at the time that your, your book was coming out. And yet you wrote this, which strikes me as extremely relevant to uh, Vladimir Putin's situation right now. Yeah. You wrote that any institution, big or small, can build a communication system that absorbs and processes information successfully during a crisis. And you write how to do so. Don't quote other information. Our comfort zone has to be gloom and doom. This rather admittedly dire information flow has to be embraced, accepted, if there's going to be any chance for it to be acted upon. And what we're hearing instead from Russia is in a case where, without knowing what's in Vladimir Putin's head, we can safely assume that the military progress is not what he anticipated when he ordered the invasion. We're hearing from people like the former foreign minister of Russia saying that Putin's spy chiefs and security officials would sooner overthrow Putin than deliver bad news to him, that the culture is so averse to giving him the objective truth during a crisis that he is not getting the kind of information flow that you are directly calling for right. during a crisis here. And I'm wondering what, how this crisis fits in with other natural disasters and the full range of potential catastrophes to show you that building in those processes of information gathering and dissemination of information are so crucial. It is that is exactly right. I had sort of forgotten that, and I'm I'm a little bit uh, overwhelmed by it when you think about what's happening in Russia. Obviously, I I've chosen a side. I'm not here to to make it better for Putin. And but what when I wrote that in the context just to say how common this is uh, of what of what Russia's experience in the context of our own disaster here, the Challenger disaster in 1986, which right. I, I tell the story of a. Of a, of a contractor who knew, who literally knew, like knew exactly what was not uh, going to hold. It's called the O-ring because it had, uh, the temperature was too cold. It's te- technical, but it had basically, it had, uh, it, it was not going to be nimble enough for the flight uh, takeout. He refused to sign uh, the final go document, ready to fly, uh, ready to launch document. He's overruled because NASA does not want to hear it because Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. there's a teacher on the shuttle. That was a big deal. Ronald Reagan is set to give the State of the Union while the Challenger is in the air. So they didn't want any more delays. And you kind of think, you know, you're you're reading the story and you're like, not only did they know, like, what were they thinking? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, the the bad news is there and they're just, they're just going to go forward as if fingers crossed as a, Strategy, and I, I see that a lot with Russia. And, and the thing I want to highlight here is, you know, information. You know, if I were his strategist, right, put me in his shoes. So, information isn't important because 
because you just need to know, it's because it drives resources. Mm. So if you're pooing and you're being and and you have a better understanding of what you're about to encounter in Ukraine, which is, you know, clear signs that this is a country prepared to defend itself uh, and not ready to to fall to its knees. And the you would not be seeing the logistics challenges uh, that you're seeing with the Russian army. There's so many ties to my book of what's happening, but you know, one specific example, all sorts of logistics challenges and wars are won or lost on on logistics. But one uh, story that is that is coming out of of Ukraine is that the Russian soldiers not only don't have MREs, meals ready to go, they don't uh, uh, have tourniquet kits. Mm-hmm. Tourniquet kits are like your basic yeah. feature of modern warfare, and we we learned this in the United States after the during the wars in Iraq, in which we got much more sophisticated. Uh, the Pentagon did in terms of, wow, we too, too many of these soldiers are dying from wounds that they didn't have to die from if only we trained non-medic soldiers. We used to have, here in this country, we used to have such a formalized vision of, of, of battlefield medicine. We literally, even during Vietnam, would, would take a bleeding soldier to a tent or to a medical facility. That's not doable in Iraq. And so at first, interestingly enough, if you want to talk left of boom, at first, the Pentagon invested in all this fortified armor and fortified gear for the soldiers in, in the hopes that the IEDs wouldn't get them. Well, they kept getting them. Mm-hmm. And then the Pentagon pivoted and said, well, we have to actually think about right of boom, that you will have injured soldiers from IEDs, but we won't tolerate stupid deaths, so to speak. And so you saw this total change in tourniquet training and kits and blood clotting devices, absolutely normal for any modern army. And the fact that the Russians don't have it is a sign that they did not think that they would be fighting urban warfare. And that that's just one of a million pieces of evidence of, of why communication opening up to the outsider, to the naysayer is absolutely essential. Once again, I'm not I'm not his advisor, but you would not be seeing these challenges with a, with a greater situational awareness of what was happening on the ground. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep 
acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You bring up the NASA case with yeah. the, the Challenger explosion, which is, if not the most studied disaster. It it's one of the most studied because the, the documentation is there. Like you said, we, we have the employee reports and all of that, but yet that lesson wasn't learned no. by many others. And we can talk about cases for, and I'm thinking right now of, you know, you, you don't put in the O-ring under these conditions, especially when this expert says you really can't, just like you shouldn't build a nuclear plant in a tsunami zone. And yet, we do. Planners in Japan went ahead and did that. What are the what are the dynamics that that lead to that? Is it cultural? Is it organizational? Is it political or a combination of those that lead people to go ahead and make similar mm -hmm. mistakes in different domains? It is because we're not talking. I mean, part of the goal of this book, of course, is that we're just not talking about ways in which we can fail safer. Um, and so the Fukushima is one of my favorite examples in the way horrible things are favorite examples. But because I think there is a there is an alternative narrative of what happened. This was just to remind listeners in 2011, a major earthquake in the ocean uh, leading to a tsunami, uh, leading to uh, radioactive uh, release uh, at the Fukushima nuclear facility. So when you when you talk about history, I really do try to give some history to these disasters. Japan's interesting. It really had decided, made a policy decision early on that it did not want to be a energy import country. And so it built its own energy, satisfied its own energy needs through nuclear power. The problem was, of course, is Japan's also the only country that, that has suffered uh, two nuclear attacks by us in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they were only able to do that politically by essentially selling the government and the industry, selling to the public and to their employees this idea of perfect safety, right? That we didn't have to worry about failure because failure wouldn't happen. We had enough safeguards in, left a boom. Well, fast forward, nuclear facilities are built in areas where uh, they had been warned not to not to be built. There were stones left behind from uh, 100 years ago or 200 years ago that have said, do not build be below uh, these levels, but they built. And I'm trying not to be too blameworthy in the book because I think there's other books that can do that. This I sort of take the world as it is. So, so yeah, they built. They built below where they were warned to build. But 
the, the counter story to Fukushima is actually there was a nuclear facility down the street, Onagawa. We never hear of the success stories built equally like Fukushima, uh, hit harder. It was closer to the epicenter, uh, also suffered from the tsunami. Uh, but their team, for a variety of reasons, had planned to fail safer when they first heard the alerts, all sorts of actions were put into place. They had a delegated management system. So um, culturally in Japan, you know, there, you, you tend to have to go to headquarters. Well, you can't do that in real time mm-hmm. during a crisis. The, the, the response teams at Onagawa were empowered to respond in real time. They shut the facility down in time. There was some damage. There was no radioactive release. Right. So here I have two nuclear facilities. <laughs> One, this horror Fukushima, that then creates a narrative that nuclear energy is somewhat inherently unsafe, that, that if something bad happens, you can't, you can't stop the harm. But I've got another story for you, which is down the street. Actually, they learned how to fail. They were hit. They, the, the tsunami came, the, the earthquake came, and they had practice for it. And there wasn't, you didn't have a worst case scenario there. And that's really important. As I said earlier, you, know, you want to know sort of why people die, right? Or why bad things happen. And to know about the two nuclear facilities then should change our narrative about how we think about nuclear energy, which should be, in my opinion, part of a conversation about green energy and, and, and getting out of the dependence, for example, of, of, of Russian energy. Right. That's one of the things I, I like about your analysis, Juliet, is you don't just look at the disasters, which for all of their horror are, are the shiny objects that people look yeah. at. So of course, you know, you, you do highlight lessons from those disasters, but you also look at the, the dogs that didn't bark, right? The, right. The, the things that could have been worse, but in almost all of those cases, what you're looking at is what happened to slow the cascading losses that right. happen after the boom, like you said earlier, stopping the bleed. How do you focus yeah, on not bleed. making things worse right. in your disaster response? And you have a yeah. great story, which I had actually forgotten about. And it was great to hear it again, because you you talk through what happened so that the effects of something going wrong mm-hmm. did not go catastrophically wrong. And I'm thinking here, of Super Bowl 47, I believe, in New Orleans. Um, Remind us of what happened, because everybody knew at the time what happened, and it could have been a a true human tragedy with with stampedes and follow-on events, but instead it became an afterthought to people's cultural memory. So what happened, and how did we avoid the worst scenarios? It's it's exactly right, and it is, and and you know, any opportunity to write about Beyonce is an opportunity I'll take. But this was the 2013 Super Bowl in New Orleans. You just need her to blurb your book, and you'll be in good exact. Shape. Oh my God, if she if I could get her to tweet, her, I should probably tag. Her. Try I it. Never thought of that. Um, but uh, and and just going back, so this is the Superdome that everyone remembers during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. This is where you know people from New Orleans went to go. Uh, evacuate. All the electricity was down. Horrible things were happening in the facility, the the deprivations of water and sanitation and safety. Just a horror story. It gets rebuilt. And in the rebuilding, the the planners fortunately uh, knew that the devil never sleeps and anticipated additional hurricanes. So what do you want to do in that instance? You want to make sure that you can stop, as you noted, the cascading losses. So, So if I have you know, that there's no last line of defense. And even if you think you have a last line of defense, actually look for more. And so they built it under, uh, with two, what we, you know, two feeds is what we call it in terms of the electrical grid. It wasn't just all on one. So this is pretty simple planning, but, but very important because fast forward uh, to the Super Bowl, there, Beyonce does the halftime. She's great, of course, but, and she has her own generator. So she's not on their grid. She leaves, but there's smoke everywhere because of her finale. And so they have to put fans out uh, to get the smoke off because you need to get the players back on. Uh, the facility had had a little bit of quirks even before that. Third third quarter starts and someone described it and, and the gremlins came out. And, and anyone who's like <laughs> gone through a blackout like that sort of knows that. And what you see on air, I just actually rewatched it the other day. What you see on air is, is the, the Superdome goes uh, half dark. Mm-hmm. So, okay, 
you've got 117 million people watching, over 100,000, I think, in the stadium at the time, or close to 100,000. You've got a problem because you're worried about, you know, is you know, are they going to think this is terrorism? Are they going right. to think X, Y, and Z? So they had planned for a, a potential scenario like this. First, they built it in a way that if the A feed went down, the B feed would would survive. So a okay. stadium in half light is good. This is why I say it's less bad, right? Mm-hmm. This is my standard. Mm-hmm. It's less bad because, but the other was in the moment they had pre-planned communications to people in the stadium, they could care less about the TV. They actually, their orientation was not towards the TV audience because we could wait. Mm -hmm. And what we didn't know watching on TV is, is cell phones are going off with alerts. Uh, People are being notified through uh, sound systems, Uh, people stuck in elevators because there were people stuck in elevators and and on escalators are, are being notified. So that in that moment, they're being told, you know, this, the lights, half the lights are off, but half the lights are on. And there's a, you're avoiding the worst of it, which would have been, of course, all dark Super Bowl, a nervous population that didn't know what was going on. And then of course the stampede, which, which is what you worry about most in any place like that, mm-hmm. whether it's an active, caused by an active shooter or a blackout. And instead we have a situation where, as I recall, nobody was even injured. No, not a single injury. People were stuck. People were stuck in elevators. I just talked uh, just last week. Just a coincidence. I was talking to the event planner for this and uh, for that for that Super Bowl, and he said they had two big concerns. It was so interesting because from their perspective, and I'm sympathetic to businesses and institutions having other priorities. They obviously had people stuck in elevators. That was a big deal, but easily cured within 20 minutes. The lights were back on in 27 minutes. They had the lights able to go back on within 12 or 13 minutes. That additional 10-minute delay was because they wanted to do additional rechecks because their fear was that there would be uh, complaints about about the refereeing, about fairness, and they didn't want there to be a whole narrative that somehow this was, you know, planned or the NFL, right. you know, didn't didn't judge it right. So I'm I try to be sympathetic that you know the the, the NFL doesn't wake up every day thinking about this, though it should, but it, it needs to. It was smart to embrace it in terms of of their planning and other high risk industries need to do so as well. One one of the ways that any government office or business enterprise can get ahead of some of these right of boom issues and communication during and immediately after a crisis is through exercises, you know, everything from red teams to tabletop exercises with the actual decision makers at the table. But you can have who you think is going to be the decision maker at the table and then find that it really doesn't help you plan for a real world scenario. T- tell us what happens yeah. when, for example, you do an exercise with uh, the governor of a state preparing <laughs> for an emergency yes. and you don't have the right people in the room. Oh my God. Oh, you, you remember these tabletops. My favorite thing with tabletops now, especially in the private sector, less so in the public sector. I mean, less. I get this less in the public sector tabletops with the private sector is, you know, the CEO or whoever's at, at the top will 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 fight the scenario. Oh, it, it wouldn't happen that way. No, it wouldn't happen that way. Oh, I'd be here. I was like, no, no, no. So we did a tabletop. It was um, not uncommon for states to have governors and lieutenant governors from other parties and it's completely dysfunctional because uh, there's no communication. And yet their constitutions have, if something happens to the governor, you better have the lieutenant governor available. So this was a state of which I don't disclose, of which there was, I don't know if there was any communication between the two offices. And we were like, this is a freaking nightmare. Whatever's going on with these two people, like is not of relevance to us. So we designed, purposefully designed, knowing that the lieutenant governor was not invited to this tabletop, designed it where we we drowned the governor in the uh, in the hurricane scenario so that then when that happens, when, when we essentially kill off the governor who's in the room, right? He, we, we say, okay, you're gone now. And um, and we essentially kill him off. Everyone, his whole staff is looking around and being like, oh, I guess I'm not in charge. No, you're not. You better get the lieutenant governor here. So there, something as simple as that, mm. right? Where people are in their, their, their political lane, right? And they're not thinking about, oh my God, I have a, re- a constitutional responsibility that if I'm not healthy or if I'm dead, I better 
pass off to lieutenant governor. So, right. so that's sort of a, a fun example. There are, are not fun examples as well, but even like even that one little takeaway will change the dynamics of how those governor's offices will think about uh, their emergency management training. Right. Let me uh, close with one topic we, yeah. we've we discussed at length in the past couple of years here on, on Lawfare, which is the global supply chain and the national security issues that relate to it. We all recall the images of the Ever Given, the massive cargo ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal in March 2021. We're, we're not talking about the similarly named ship that ran aground in the Chesapeake Bay recently. We're going to the one that became the source of hundreds, if not thousands of memes as the Suez Canal was blocked and hundreds of other massive cargo ships and other vessels were not able to get through the Suez Canal. Given other global supply chain issues mm-hmm. during the pandemic up to that point, this should have been yeah. an absolute disaster for the global economy. One could easily envision a scenario in which this event and this event alone because of just-in-time shipping and things like that, could have taken the global economy down. But it didn't. What had the shipping companies, perhaps maybe they did tabletop exercises, but at least we know they studied the lessons of the past, like earlier crises. What did shipping companies in particular learn from the past Mm -hmm. that allowed them to deal with the, the crisis and the right of boom in this crisis in a relatively effective way? Yeah, it's uh, it's as I always say, oh, I love this story, but I do love this story. This is the story of the Yellow Fleet. Uh, uh, the as you're describing, the Suez Canal had closed before. It had closed most parts of it had closed between 1967 and 1975 between the the Six Day War and the Yom Kippur. I hope I have that right between uh, between Israel and Egypt in terms of the order. These 15 ships get stuck, and the shipping industry has to respond. So how they respond is they then had to the Cape of Good Hope, which is Africa. That that planning and, and having to do it remained consistent for decades. That shipping companies are really old. They've been Merck and they've been around a really long time, you know, over a century in most cases. So they head to Africa because they got to deliver their goods. And they take into account cost and time and, and safety. It's, it's more dangerous to go that way. But they know how to do it under, under the worry that the Suez will close. And they don't know why, right? I mean, the boom, as I said, the boom could happen. Who would have thought in 2021 it would be the ever given, you know, turning the wrong way at the wrong moment and getting stuck? So the ever given shuts down the Suez. No one can, no ships can pass. It's not at all clear when it's going to reopen. As you said, it, it didn't look like they had their act together. It reopened within a week. And, but what you saw almost immediately, especially with the major companies that are part of this global supply chain economy, is they just shifted. They just did. And we didn't even notice it. I mean, there were, there were disruptions, but they weren't disruptions of the magnitude that a, that a shipping industry that was just backed up right. at Suez would have been. Right. And so they start heading to the Cape of Good Hope. The prices increase because it's more expensive, whatever. We can absorb that for some period of time. And so when, when people think about the Suez Canal and, and, and the Ever Given being stuck and the bulldozer trying to Oh, God, what a disaster, what a disaster. People like me think, wow, that's, a, that's where the planning and the pivoting and the, and the real-time sort of situational awareness got these ships uh, to turn. What people don't know is if you look at the Suez Canal, once you're in the canal, you cannot turn around. Mm-hmm. So there were about 40 ships behind the Ever Given mm-hmm. that literally, you know, you're just stuck there until the, you can only go one way or one way in that part of the canal. And so that was just a, a, a moment that the world sees one way, but if they understood disaster management better, they might actually come to see it as, okay, that, that I can build that adaptability, that planning into, into my personal life, into my professional life just as the cargo industry did anticipating the devil once again. Let me let me actually allow you to close with with something else here. All of our listeners have some role in their life whether in their business life or their overall life of crisis management because life is about navigating crises uh, whether it's of a health nature or an organizational nature or or something else. So Talk to the person who's the skeptic now, Juliet. Talk Mm -hmm. to somebody who says, you know what? 
I only have finite resources, whether that's time or treasure. And I, if I'm going to spend 100 units of my time or treasure focusing on thinking about bad things, I'm going to focus on keeping them from happening in the first place because I don't want to have to deal with it. What is your pitch to that person to say, you know what? You need to shift some of those 100 yeah. units of your resources. Yeah. You need to shift some of that to to learn how to use the tools at your disposal to minimize the consequences right. when the boom comes. How do you make that pitch? Yeah. So what you're describing is an exercise I do at the end of the book, right? Which is you know, take a hundred pennies and make sure enough of them are on both sides of the boom. Right. So, cause we, I recognize we have finite resources. We're all doing other things, but just thinking about sort of what, what do I wish I had put into place in anticipation of the boom? And what I say to that person and what I, what I say to different groups of people. So what I say to that person is wish all you want you will be spending more time and more resources if you don't begin to to prepare for the devil's return. So okay. this is just a cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. I've got the numbers to prove you otherwise. But I do I do like that you raise this other issue which is, you know, th- that there are populations in the world let alone in our country in which this seems like a, you know, I don't know. It's you know this is a, this is this is nice to think about, but you know who has the time when I can barely pay the rent and what I and I recognize that, and so part of the message is for those who can, right? For people like me and you and others, like our responsibility, and also people presumably who also may have leadership positions in their offices and 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 institutions and elsewhere. If we owe other populations this duty, mm-hmm. in other words, the more that we can relieve the stress on public officials, on, on systems, when the boom happens, the, the better off other communities that may not have our luxuries will be. So, so I can't fix, and I say this a lot, like I can't fix income inequality through the disaster management framework, Mm -hmm. but I can make the impact of a disaster maybe better for communities that can't get better prepared. If I relieve the stresses, if people like me and others begin to think through how could I do better at the moment of the boom. Right. Well, Juliet, I want to thank you for writing The Devil Never Sleeps. It's a remarkable book. I want to thank you for joining us here on the podcast to talk about it. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please do share the podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or just running down the street shouting the virtues of the Lawfare Podcast. Help us spread the word and help us produce everything we do at Lawfare by becoming a material supporter at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash lawfare. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Hamza Shatu was our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.